Hello and welcome to another episode of Diabetics Doing Things. We are telling the amazing stories of people with diabetes from all over the world. And before we get started with this episode, I do want to issue a quick content warning. We are going to be talking about near-death experiences and diabetes on this podcast. And while we know that sometimes even taking a walk out your front door can be a near-death experience with diabetes on a daily basis, if that makes you uncomfortable, please proceed with caution or skip the episode if you have to. All right, welcome to the show, Aaron Dodge. RD, LD, CDCES, and person with diabetes. Welcome to the show. Yes, thank you, Rob. We are so excited to have you. And let's just give a little bit of context to this interview because we were posting some content and I think I was putting it in an email that, you know, for me this year, I've really come to this realization that people with diabetes, people like ourselves, are living on borrowed time. If we were born at basically any other time in history, like we wouldn't be able to live. And, you know, for me, that is is hopeful now, today, you know, for the future. But, you know, for many, obviously there there are still major obstacles to overcome. And so you reached out and you said, you know, hey, I, I want to talk about my story and experiencing a true near-death experience with diabetes from diagnosis. So so here we are. I'm glad we made it happen. Yeah. It's just amazing how the universe works sometimes. And um, here I am doing diabetes education. And when you hear my story, you'll realize how crazy the stars align and and things happen for a reason. But um, I was in seventh grade and this was back in 93. So this is actually my 30 year anniversary this year. Oh, wow. And yeah, I know. Right. Um, So I was playing church basketball and we you know, I started to feel symptoms and normal, like, you know, everybody on the podcast seems to mention the thirsty, the tired. And then something happened that like smacked me in the face that made me realize like, oh man, this isn't just hungry and and tired and thirsty. Um, I actually peed my pants. And when you're 13 years old and um, you pee your pants, it's a big red flag that something's not right. So we were on our way home from basketball practice and I went before we left and of course drinking a bunch of water and then couldn't make it to the bathroom. And my mom and I both were like, whoa. Um, So we kind of started looking at the symptoms and things. And the next thing you knew, we ended up hitting there. So there was a big blizzard that came through. I grew up in West Virginia. And so this was the blizzard of 93 and we got hit with two feet of snow And when you live in the country, you want to make best friends with someone who has a tractor and, you know, can plow your your driveway. So we lived up on a big hill and we had luckily friends and family and they came in and shoveled us out so I could go to the doctor. And we just did the walk-in appointment. And my mom came with a list of all my symptoms, which was like, I'd lost 10 or 15 pounds already. Um, I had Uh, the thirsty, tired, all the symptoms. Like if you'd read it in a book and check all the things, it would be everything. And then I also had thrush, which is like where you get a buildup of uh, yeast in your mouth from all the glucose, all the sugar that was circulating through my body. And I mean, she was throwing him softballs. Like, you know, I didn't think anybody but babies would get or would get um, thrush. And he's like, oh, no, everything's fine. Oh, your throat's sore. Let me take a look. And it was, of course, red from the irritation. And he diagnosed me with, um, misdiagnosed me with strep and gave me antibiotics. And I went on home. 
And of course, the recommendation was to drink Gatorade and ginger ale and uh, popsicles and jello. And I just got worse and worse. And that was on a Friday. So Saturday, I wasn't feeling better, but my mom was waiting for those antibiotics to kick in. And then, you know, being sick on the weekend is never a good plan. Especially and during so, the snow, the snowstorm, like you want to be out playing in the snow. Right. So she finally took me to the emergency room and I was kind of in and out of consciousness at that point. It wasn't making any sense because my, like the pH in my body had gone kind of bonkers from the ketoacidosis and made it to, she had to like carry me into the ER. And luckily there was a lady there that had, was like one of the grandmas of the team where I'd played softball and basketball with it. She didn't even recognize me. I'd lost 20 pounds at that point and was down to like 65 pounds and had like that gaunt, like you know, on the verge of death face. And my mom told me just the first time this detail that I asked her two things on the way to the hospital. I asked her if she could call our children's pastor to see if he could pray for me. And then I asked her if I was going to die. And it like killed her to hear those words. So we made it there. I laid on the grandma's lap while mom checked me in and she kept trying to keep me from going, you know, into the coma. And I don't remember anything after that. So fast forward, my sugar was 1851. And the number is not like, I mean, it's, it's huge. I've never met anyone else that's lived with a higher blood sugar than that. And it's interesting because I'm in the diabetes world so much, but I woke up two days later on a Tuesday and it was just, I was just so lucky and it's it's just a crazy story just to even tell now about how close I was and everybody was I was too fragile to transport because there was a big children's hospital up the road and with the snow and everything they couldn't really get me there and had to like conference and kind of come up with a game plan for like giving me insulin and bringing my sugar down slowly because um, the electrolytes and everything that's a really tricky sort of balance to get you back into the normal range so um it was it was um amazing that i survived 1851 that is super high i think that the highest maybe i had heard prior to that was 1300 and that was a, a friend of mine or like sort of like a loose tie from my childhood who i played ice hockey with back in the day and that he, he had a very similar kind of like went to the doctor they misdiagnosed him as something else and and you know 1300 was the result but man, you know, what did you feel like when you woke up? Did did you, you know, obviously like I'm sure your sugars are back at least low much lower than they were before. Like did you and with no recollection, like what do you remember about your early days like training you to live with diabetes? Oh, it was so just as a like for you youngsters out there, this diabetes dinosaur from 30 years ago, it was just right when the food label came out and it was when they used to do exchange lists. So I got like you get a serving of protein and, you know, a meat and then a starch and then a fruit and a vegetable. And it was very regimented in um, kind of that balanced um, plan. And my mom, I mean, we had class. I stayed in the hospital mainly because I was so fragile, but to learn all that stuff um, for a week and made best friends with the educator there. And I just loved her job. And luckily, my, my pediatric endocrinologist also had type one. 
And um, it was just, it made me want to teach people. And that's kind of how I got into doing like Dodge Diabetes is, is um, what I'm doing now with trainings and everything. Well, and, and, you know, you're like, you're a registered dietitian, a CDCES, like, you know, dedicating your life to helping people with diabetes and dedicating your career for that. Yeah. I mean, how often do you get to share your story? Like, you know, with people quite a bit of being like, Hey, you know, it's pretty bad, but it could have been worse. Could have been 1850 during the worst so storm in a century. <laughs> right. Right. And, um, you know, I still keep in touch with my endo, my pediatric endo and, um, he's up in Morgantown right now, still, still working 30 years later. He was just right out of fellowship. So he got trial by fire, you know, with my diagnosis, but, um, I'm just, I'm so excited and proud that, you know, to have diabetes as, you know, my, my, um, life's purpose. And, and, you know, it's kind of one of those things when you wake up, you kind of get a lot more clarity. And I was one of those people that got to tell, like, I told everybody when I was back in school with seventh grade, I was letting my friends give me injections and, you know, telling everybody, um, what had happened. And it's, how much, I, I love I love that you were that way. Like how much of that is just you? Is just your personality? Is like nature versus 100%. nurture, right? Yeah. Because you know, we've met a lot of people with diabetes over the years and continue to. And everybody has their and I think it ebbs and flows, like depending on the season and you know, kind of where you are mentally and physically, like how much you want to share. But yeah, I mean it, it really is like a personality thing. Is like there's people who bring people in and there are people that kind of keep people at bay and I'd say like, there's no right way to do it. It's just whatever feels most comfortable for you. But, you know, now I'm sure that that helps you, you know, really cover a lot of ground really quickly with some of your patients. Well, you just gain a lot of trust and, and you have a lot of empathy about how hard this disease really is. And um, I think that's the big key is it's every day, 24 seven, no vacations. And, you know, to have someone that really gets that is, um, is is really special and um you know i'm just i'm just you know love how the universe works it's kind of funny you know i mean looking back now 30 years later like whoa but well it, it is kind of a, it, it's really interesting like the passage of time right you mentioned exchanges and and in eritrea both uh, both of us kind of had like this you know flashback <laughs> memory of like oh man yeah remember exchanges like oh yeah this is one carb and like one carb is 15 grams and like that's how you do this and um you know just like the ways that the diabetes technology and treatment has evolved and something that we talk about a lot on this podcast is that when someone's diagnosed today in 2022 at the time of recording hopefully like there's a chance that they have a dramatically better diagnosis story than for me almost 18 years ago Eritrea 20 years ago and for you 30 years ago and like those things that they told us to keep an eye out for back then are now a reality Right. So, you know, for you, like when you, when you have those conversations with recently diagnosed children, families, adults, like how do you, do you use that sort of past context? And, you know, I'm sure that really helped you to have a pediatric endo living with diabetes. And like, what, what kind of advantage does that give you even compared to your colleagues who don't have diabetes, like just that extra lens to communicate or, you know, how do you, how do you see that manifested in your work? Um, I would say just being 100% delved in with my finger on the pulse every day, watching my own CGM, doing trial and error with different foods, going out to like a crazy sushi restaurant. Like there's so many opportunities 
to teach myself with my own diabetes, but then that transitions and translates to help other people with scenarios. Um, you know, even little things like stress, like I've had two different moms where their sugars will spike when they get home, when their kids get home from school. So it's like that whole stress response. So we sometimes will like tweak their basal rates or whatever to accommodate for that stress or teach them how to like be more mindful and kind of calm their bodies down in that stress response situation. So there's a lot of random weird scenarios that I've lived that I can kind of share and troubleshoot with. Um, so it's, it's great experience. And I joke around that, you know, God's made me the best dietitian and the best diabetes educator just from 30 years of, of living diabetes. I, I was going to say there's kind of no better patient than, than yourself. Right. And, you know, you mentioned weird scenarios and, you know, as you were talking about, you know, moms whose sugars rise when their kids get home, I, I kind of laughed. I was like, man, moms with diabetes need a break and a nap. They are doing so <laughs> much work. Um, but weird scenarios that we were talking about kind of in our email thread is a little bit about hypo and awareness. And I know Eritrea has, or lives with a little bit of that on her side. So we'd love to just have you guys talk about like, you know, hypo and awareness after a long life with diabetes. I mean, where do I really even start? Um, I used to be super hypo where like if I had low blood sugar, I would feel it. If I wake up, no problem. But I think it's mostly in the last like 10 years that if I have a low, unless it's a really, really bad one, I do not feel it. Um, I have seizures. Really not fun. Um, I'm really thankful for my GVO, and I always have emergency food on, but damn, <laughs> hypo and awareness really, really sucks. I burned my face one year, like, from, like, here to here from the seizure. So it's been tough, um, and I don't really know how to fix it. So I'd love any advice that you have. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I those lows, and I honestly personally hate to be low. Like when I'm looking at my time in range and if there's anything more than 2%, like the goal is less than 4% in time in range. So if you guys want to go download your, um, it's called the AGP report, whether you're using CareLink or the Libre view or um, the Dexcom. Clarity, the Clarity. Yeah, Clarity app. Yeah. So you'll be able to see, and if you're less than, if you're more than 4% in that low range and very low range, then you really need to work on bringing that back up um, because it's really, you can have those scary events where, I mean, and I almost, I feel like it's almost like a post-traumatic stress thing where you kind of get anxious anytime you start to go low. And when you feel out of it, it's, you just feel so vulnerable and it's really scary, um, especially when you don't have anyone around that can help you or that I knows your diabetes. Crazy. I think it's so crazy that you say that because I'm one of those people that if my blood sugar is like 180 and like slanting down, I will treat my low because I'd rather be high than have to deal with being low for a long period of time, especially because I don't know if it is part of hyper-awareness or not, but like once I'm already low, it's not an easy 15 carb treat. It's like hours of being low because I've been low for so long and I just didn't notice or whatever. So um, something that did help was changing my target blood sugar to like 160 instead of it being like 110, which is like on the higher side, so I can catch those lows. But I definitely do have that anxiety if I see the arrow slanting down even a little bit. I'm like, got a treat, time for a snack, like... Right. And the speed which you fall makes it feel even worse. Um, Ooh, and the nighttime hypos, I think, yeah. yeah. If I'm falling fast, like if I'm two or three arrows down, even if my like actual blood sugar is not 
what we would call like severely low, just that motion. And for me, I always feel like, I don't, I don't know. You, I don't know if you guys have seen like Dr. Strange when like they hit the people and they're like soul comes out behind them. That's how I feel with a low. I'm just like, I'm like trailing behind my physical body. Yeah, a lot of people um, refer to like Inception, that little um, scene where he's kind of like having that out of body like experience. It kind of feels like where you get the wah, wah, like you don't really like hear a thing. You feel like you're in a tunnel and there's a lot of hormones that are kicking in when that happens. So when you have hypo unaware, um, it it's, doesn't signal those hormones that can help increase your blood sugars naturally. So when they looked at the study, um, I know we kind of talked about like that. So there's this thing called dead in the bed syndrome. And it's a scary statistic that shows that six to 10% of people with type one um, will die in their sleep from a low blood sugar. Now, I mean, that's a super significant um, percentage. Now, hopefully with like the automated insulin delivery systems out there, um, it's going to be better. And then like having access to CGMs more now. Um, but if you don't have that response, like with the hypo unawareness, um, your body doesn't have that ability to send that stress signal to your body. And what tends to happen and whether you have a seizure or not with the dead in the bed syndrome is that your heart can't accommodate and you end up having the heart attack basically. And right. that's what ends up being the cause of death from that low blood sugar. Um, so it is, can be really scary and it's really serious. Um, well, I think too, I think, like I think it's a lot more, sorry, I think it's a lot more common than people know. I um, grew up going to Camp Sweeney. So I know a lot of kids with diabetes and now we're adults. And I can't tell you how many of, them from my graduating class just haven't made it from dead in bed syndrome like at least 10 out of 30 of us so it's really sad and i don't think people talk about dead in bed enough and i don't think most people know about heart attack part i think we just think it's a really bad love well i think too even the name is sort of it's so scary to say you know and so i think it yeah. is really you know especially when people latch onto it i remember one of my classmates in college who is a friend of my college girlfriend i was like helping her move something when you're an athlete in college you get asked to move stuff a lot um and her sister had diabetes had type one and i had just gotten onto a pump and i was like telling her about it and her mom was like very anti-pump in terms of because of the dead in the bed syndrome because like the pump didn't know there was no way at that time for it to be connected to a CGM. So it would continue to give you insulin, even if you didn't necessarily need it. And she was really afraid of that type of interaction. And, you know, so she kind of like told me about it and I was like, I don't want to talk about this. Like, <laughs> I'm like, I'm going to be, yeah. okay. but, but um, yeah, I mean, dead in the bed syndrome is, you know, that's why it's so important. Like you said, access to CGM, access to glucagon and to have those things covered by insurance, you know, especially like, you know, government insurance or Medicare, Medicaid, like for people who, you know, are on assistance, like they need that stuff in an emergency because it doesn't matter what your A1C is. If you're the best controlled person with diabetes of all time, like one mix up of, of an insulin dosage, one accidental or miscalculation of carbs, like, and you could be in real dire shape. And I think, you know, that's something that we don't like to think about a lot. I think it's like a hard place to operate from, but it certainly is like a very hefty mental burden that we have to overcome on a regular basis. 
Right. As if like the 24-7 diabetes management wasn't enough, you have that kind of doom and gloom looming in the background of your management. And it's tough because it's like Goldilocks. You don't want your sugar to be too high, but you don't want it to be too low. And trying to find your personalized target is the most important. And it's really hard with social media and seeing everybody's unicorns and all these beautiful graphs to not feel like I want to get my sugars in better control. Um, but the best A1C for you is one where you're not having those lows. So if that's 7%, if that's 7.5%, or it's 6%, you just have to be careful because the lower you run, the more at risk you are for having those severe, severe hypos and the dead in the bed thing. Aaron, talk to me about this because this, you know, I- we don't have a ton of clinicians on the podcast, so I'm really glad that we're able to talk to this about you. But, you know, they're, the target A1C for a person without diabetes is, you know, 5.5 to 6, you know, is like is what the chart always says generally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, you have your, your elevated to normal people, which is like a good time, a good A1C level for somebody with diabetes, like well-controlled, mm-hmm. well-managed. So you got like the the 6.0 to 7.0 and then like slightly elevated 7.0 to 8, all that stuff. I've seen a lot of people online talking about the the graph, uh, you know, it, with their A1C in the low five or like high fours in some cases living with type one. And, you know, so that's like an average blood sugar of like 80, 80 to 75 in some cases on the low end. I mean, though, there are people who are trying to do that like at that target. Even though, like I've I've seen the the studies, there's no evidence yet to support that that has any sort of impact in your long term health. What are the risks of the sort of the downsides of being so, I guess, type A about that control? Mm-hmm. Well, remember, everybody's diabetes is different, and I think we're we're at the cusp of finding out so many more different types of diabetes genetically that it'll be super interesting because um, I've always struggled with keeping my sugars in range. And I have some other, like I have celiac and some other allergies and things that have, where I have a lot of inflammation, but your diabetes is your diabetes. So it's not you against other people with, with, with diabetes. It's you and doing your best and finding your target um, that makes you feel safe and that keeps you from being at so much risk for these complications. And, you know, with that said, um, I somehow made it through college without a CGM and I played intramural basketball and went to the bar afterwards. I mean, it was like, there were some scary like scenarios and situations where, I mean, it's just a miracle. Yeah. You're um, reading from my bio basically like, yeah, Yeah. no no CGM, (laughs) just vibes going to party to party. Oh, Hey, you got a, a, some punch that you guys made. Oh, there's probably 400 carbs in this. Like, Oh, well let's bottoms up. Let's keep partying. Right. And I mean, not like I'm not endorsing like the party scene, but like, I feel like we have so much better technology right now that I think it's a, it's a, you have to have a careful balance. Um, so they do know that if you have a lot of low sugars and hypo, so if you've ever had those scary lows, um, like I was talking about, 
you feel brain dead, man. It's almost like you couldn't count change out in your hand or do mental math or even make a sentence sometimes. I had a really bad low where I couldn't even talk coherently. And that's your brain crying out for glucose. So um, when you've had a low like that, especially an extended severe low in a long, over a long period of time, that can really damage your brain cell. And what they're finding is that um, a lot of those lows can cause dementia and like a, that Alzheimer's sort of pathway um, because of your, your, the body chemistry and all that damage over time. Um, so well, it, it your can brain operates little... on glucose, you know, just like, just like the rest of your, you know, and the brain is so interesting, like neuroplasticity. And I'm, I'm really big into metabolic health right now. And I'm trying to kind of translate some of the research that I'm reading for people with diabetes, because, you know, I think a lot of times it's people without diabetes or without other chronic illnesses who are kind of leading the way on these studies. And at the same time, like they're using tools that we have to use to survive and so I think we kind of have an advantage there to like get ahead of the game on some of this stuff, but you know, your brain needs glucose. I, I was just, as you were telling me, you know, telling us about this, that low that you had where you couldn't really think or count change. I've had two lows where it, it kind of was what you were talking about earlier about like extended low blood sugars. Cause my actual sugars were really not that low, probably in the like high sixties, low seventies, but I just couldn't translate what was happening in my brain out of my mouth which is unusual for me. I'm a talker, as you guys know, 250 episodes on this podcast. You guys have heard me vomit from the mouth a ton. So for me to not be able to communicate, I was, I had to just be quiet and like, just tell my coworkers around me, like, don't worry about me. I'm totally inside my head and I cannot communicate externally. Like, let me just eat some gummy bears. I have a default setting. So my parents and my brothers say that when my blood sugar is low, I get really quiet and I just start saying, I don't feel good. I don't feel good. And I just like, Auto mode, like I don't feel good until my blood sugar comes up. It's really weird, but I've been doing it since I was a little kid. So maybe it's like my body's way of like, or my brain's way of being like, this is what we do when our blood sugar is low and we don't know what else to do. You know, it's tough. It's tough living with a chronic illness that's like so stigmatized. And, you know, type one, obviously not nearly the stigma of type two, but when you start talking about things like dementia and you hear, you know, a lot of these talking head podcasts talking about the blood brain barrier and, and, you know, dementia and Alzheimer's being like type three diabetes and understanding like the role of glucose control with like overall brain health. Um, you know, it really is, it, it's challenging. It like really kind of like puts in perspective to a person who doesn't live with diabetes, like, managing your glucose and managing your sugars and your diet and exercise holistically, you know, can lead, it really has big impacts like, uh, and a spillover ripple effects later in your life. So how do you, you know, when you're, you've been managing patients, I'm sure of all ages and all, uh, you know, types of diabetes for some time, like how do you help manage that sort of marathon of diabetes where it really is not a sprint. It's a thing that we have to manage day in and day out, full-time job with no vacation. How do you manage that like later, later in life and like set people up for success? It is a hundred percent like that marathon and you have to balance. You were talking about those type A's that have the 4% like ish, like 5%, even, even less than 6%. Like that's a lot of work. Um, to maintain. So you have to have that life balanced with your diabetes and your sanity and how much it's worth. And I think that when, since, so I've been on the, like the automated insulin systems for a couple of years now, and that's probably been the biggest thing where I can almost 
for a brief second, almost forget I have diabetes and it'll steer for me and I feel confident. Um, but, you know, I, I just want to reiterate that Again, the A1C is just kind of a guide, but I'm telling you, if you can look at your time and range and you can, if you identify that you're more than 4% below target, again, you are at really, really high risk of having a severe, severe low. And none of that effort that you're doing to prevent long-term complications is going to make any difference if you, if you don't make it or if you drive your right. car into a tree or, you know, I mean, it's a really brutal truth, but it's it's something that we, you know, kind of have to bring to, to the light. Um, well, I'd like to talk about that because, you know, four, four to 5%, I, I hope that when people are listening to this podcast, they go and plug their CGM into the clarity report or into their in pen app or, you know, generate a report from their, you know, pump through their, you know, care link. If they see like, you know, say somebody's got higher than four or 5% of, uh, of low blood sugars or, you know, extreme or severe low blood sugars, you know, in that two to 3% range, like higher, the higher percentage than you would recommend. What are some of the steps that they need to take? And obviously like, you know, consult your doctor, consult your care team, but you as a, as a CDCS and a, and a registered dietitian, what, what steps would you recommend taking just broad strokes? Yeah. So it's actually pretty specific and it's actually nice because it's sort of laid out for you. So think about your diabetes as a thermostat. So if you're used to hanging out at the 300 number, even going to 100 is going to feel low to you. You're going to have symptoms. And so with hypo unaware, what happens is your body just kind of gets used to being low. And that's not a good thing. So your thermostat is set below your target range. And nothing's going to be alerting your body that, oh, it needs to like activate and release that cortisol and, and all those hormones that help naturally bring your blood sugar back up or tell your heart that it needs to compensate and work harder so that you don't have that heart attack with the hypo um, unaware. And so what they found is that thermostat has a time um, estimate for two weeks. So if you think back to when you were diagnosed, it took about two weeks for you to kind of feel better and feel normal in that target range of blood sugar and not feel hypoglycemic when you got to 100. So two weeks is the sweet spot. So that might mean like Aicha did where you upped your, your target range, you were very aggressive about not going below um, 90, even setting your Dexcom or your um, Libre or CGM alerts um, to again, let you know when you hit 100 so that you can catch and bump and nudge that blood sugar back up into that target range and not ever really see those low, low numbers so that it readjusts your diabetes thermostat. And in two weeks, you should feel symptoms again once you go below 60 or, or 70 or in those scary low sugar ranges. And if you can maintain that, it's almost like a reset button. So that's what I would definitely recommend for people. And again, two weeks, even if your sugar, your blood sugar average goes up to 150, 200, 250 even, it's the safety factor that two weeks is not going to matter in the scope of your, your projected um, complications from diabetes, but it will save you from not feeling your lows and having those scary emergencies with hypos. My doctor always says this thing. Um, she's like, I'd rather us deal with high, like high blood sugars and figure them out and have the time to figure them out than you die from a low and us not be able to figure it out. So 
And I feel like that's a really good way for me to just be like, I'd rather be high for a week, for a week and a half figuring it out than being low and not getting the chance to figure it out. Yeah, I um I was on a panel. That's actually how I met my endo, which this is the most Rob thing of all time. Is I met my endo on a panel, um, and he, it was a off the college panel, and so we were kind of talking about what we were talking about earlier about you know you're gonna want to go out. You're, and I was telling parents, I was like, your kids are gonna drink alcohol. Like I don't care who they are. Like it's gonna happen. Like just get comfortable with it. And my doctor was, you know, now my endo was on the panel, and he said. Yeah, like the worst thing that happens if you go drink a bunch of mixed drinks out and you, you know, come home and go to sleep, you wake up a little bit high. He's like, but one thing that I don't want you to do is to, you know, go out and have, you know, really be overzealous about bolusing for alcoholic drinks when you don't really know what, you know, what, how much sugar is in it and all those things. And he's like, we can live a couple hours being high. That's not going to, you know, but what I don't want is for you to give too much insulin, be impaired by alcohol. So glucagon doesn't work and get into a situation where, you know, you, you could potentially die. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's right. Like, you know, a little high blood sugar here and there, like don't beat yourself up. You can adjust and move on from that. And, you know, on the other end, however, it's very dangerous and, and very severe with, with severe hypoglycemia. Right. And um, that little caveat with the alcohol, um, if you think about the symptoms of being intoxicated and the symptoms of low sugar, they kind of like mesh and meld together to where it's hard to tell the difference. Have I had too much to drink or is it my sugar's going low? And then if you drink excessively to the point where you're not really feeling it, you're not with it, you're kind of like, you know, passing out those symptoms your body tries to tell you when you do hit that low threshold to kind of wake up, get something to eat. Um, it doesn't work. It doesn't trigger. And you just sleep right through it because you're passed out from too much alcohol. And those are honestly probably the scariest scenarios. And that's when you do see a lot of, um, of, of dead in the bed and admissions to the hospital and, and people not doing well because um, of the combination of those two. For sure. And, you know, there's a lot of research coming out now, even, you know, at the time of recording this week on the Huberman Lab podcast, which I don't know, you guys who really know me know that I love Huberman Lab. Um, even one drink a day, like, you know, one drink three times a week <laughs> makes your neocortex smooth. Like it's super bad for your brain. Like, and, and we're talking a lot about your brain health. Like the brain is part of your body, but your mind lives in your brain. And even though I have, it is on record. I have, I have drank alcohol. I've had fun. I have been Mr. Party guy. And, you know, I'm also entering that part of my life where I just become more boring because I'm aging, but you know, alcohol is bad for you. I don't care if you have diabetes or not. And while it is fun and it is a huge part of our culture and it's sort of the only drug that if you tell people you don't do it, they look at you funny. Um, it's, it's bad for you. And I think we like at, at face value, we just got to remember that, that when you're living with diabetes and you're participating in things that are totally normal from a, from an able-bodied, like in a cultural standpoint, you still have diabetes and you're still going to need to be as hypo aware as possible. And you need to be able to have glucagon work if you're in a, a you know, a tight spot or a bad situation. And, you know, right, right off the bat, those are two things, you know, the alcohol affects directly at any time. So anyway, that's my PSA. I'm getting off my soapbox. Uh, <laughs> right. And, Physiology wise, the reason that doesn't happen for anybody listening is 
So he's saying that the glucagon won't work when you inject it. And that's because um, the liver is so busy processing the alcohol that it doesn't release that glucose that your basal insulin is taking care of. So it's like a double whammy where you won't have the glucagon, um, the glycogen in your liver to help bring your sugar up if you need it. But then also your risk of going low is drastically increased in the number of drinks that you're consuming because it's going to um, keep your liver from squirting out um, sugar into your blood. And that's what your basal is handling. So your risk of hypo is is through the roof. Well, man, we have covered a lot of really good stuff on this podcast. Um, Aaron, you run a great account on Instagram, dodge underscore diabetes. So if you are looking to, to connect with Aaron or you have questions for her after this podcast, um, I'd encourage you to reach out there. And, you know, the other thing is like, and Eritrea mentioned this to me, like we came into this podcast thinking we talk a lot about really dark and heavy stuff, which we have, but at the same time, like people with diabetes do, like we're approaching it in a way that's accessible. It doesn't have to be scary. Like we can plan for the worst case and, and not get caught up in a negative headspace and like really still say, okay, well, I am going to be prepared. I do need to understand. And you know, for what, you know, Eritrea and I often talk about in our staff meetings is this could be the first time that somebody hears about you know, drinking and diabetes or dead in the bed syndrome or, you know, near death experiences and diabetes or hypo and awareness. And these topics are really important to cover. So Aaron, thanks so much for, for reaching out and connecting with us to, to come on this episode. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. And you can um, find me on Facebook as well at Dodge Diabetes LLC. And um, I have a community on there and post a lot of um, helpful educational stuff and um, do education for one-on-ones. And I have a group, a virtual group course that is called Be Your Best Pancreas. It's all intricate diabetes for insulin users. So I'd love to see you guys there. And um, I'm just so blessed and excited to be able to share all the 30 years of experience with diabetes to help help others. Well, and I think, you know, you brought this up earlier, like it was instrumental for you to have a pediatric endo who lived with type 1 and you never know what you're missing out on by not having more people with type one, especially experts in your life. And we talk about that a lot. A friend with type one is a friend indeed. That's a great life hack to get ahead. And we will include all the links to the Dodge Diabetes pages and website in the show notes. So if you're listening to this now, go ahead and click there and check them out. Great. Thank you so much, Rob. Thank you, Ayutra. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, thank you so much, Aaron. And we'll see you next time.